Welcome to Brian Talks to Humans, a people's podcast about everyday people. Uh, we're going to pick up with part two of the Rosie episode. Talked to Rosie for quite a long time, covered a lot of topics, so I'll you know keep the intro short. As with the last one, just keep in mind we're going to talk about some heavy topics. You know, in this particular one, we're talking about you know uh, religion and sexuality and uh, sexual assault and just in general, just all three episodes. Please make sure that you keep that in mind. So, uh, without further ado, let's get into part two with Rosie. Yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah, that's totally sure. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. And Interesting. Another thing that I read about unmasking autism that I think is coming up in so many folks that I that I talk to is the the overlap, disproportionate overlap between neurodivergent folks and so many other things, which is sometimes yeah. why like it, it's hard to, you know, parse out what what acronym are the symptoms coming from, right? Because there's so there's an overlap <laughs> like with autism, uh, ADHD, CPSD, OCD, yeah. BPD, you know, uh, depression, anxiety, right? Like it's just like addiction and, and, and eating disorders and other things like that. There's, we're more prone to that, et cetera. Right. One of the other like overlaps we have is in like, you know, kink culture and the queer community. You're yeah. a, you're a rainbow comrade, right? And I sure am. Yeah. I was just going to say, I learned in this, I, this super niche therapy group therapy that I did last year and this year, uh, which is queer neurodiverse group therapy, which is sounds very niche, but actually um, I learned there that like about three, I think it, I think the stats are that about 3% of cis people, cisgender people identify as autistic and about 25% of queer people identify as autistic, which is wild. It may be autistic and ADHD, that stat, and I should have looked at that, but I didn't. But the point is the, the crossover, the, um, insert the word that I'm looking for, please, um, intersectionality between um, neurodiversity and queerness is huge. And I had no idea. Mm. Um, so yeah, I identify as bisexual, pansexual feels better to me, but, um, some bisexual identifying people get upset by that. Um, Mm. but bi to me says you are, it's a, it's a binary and bi is two. And so to me, that feels like I might. Well, the other thing too, is if you identify as bisexual, you have to figure out, am I having sex? every two weeks or every two months every two days yeah no 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 by by annually um but by to me has always felt like male or female where right, yeah. as, as some people feel it is attraction to my own gender as well as other genders but mm. the by thing because i'm quite language focused i that doesn't sit with me properly because it means two and so pan works much better for me because i'm attracted to all genders and no genders and um everybody i'm attracted to a person who i find attractive mm-hmm. um i am married to a cis man um uh, who is so generous and understanding and uh and allows me space to 
to live my queer life and embrace my queer identity, which I'm really thankful for. Um, he's amazing. Uh, and I do, and I also recognize my huge privilege in having, um, you know, a hetero-presenting queer relationship. So I'm going to ask you a question, and it's always a tough question for me to ask, right? Because people don't ask me, when did you, when did you realize you were cis? Or when did you realize you were straight, <laughs> right? I can tell you like an early memory of like realizing like women turn me on or whatever. But the, the way that I like to ask it is like, when did you first pick up on like the signals the world is telling me how to be mm. is not is not what I'm feeling inside me? Does that does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. <clears throat> it makes sense. But <clears throat> this is a funny one because of the way I was raised, because I was raised my parents there's a few examples here because i was raised by gay men and ballerinas i was around gay people all the time growing up it wasn't until i got to school that i realized people that gay was a thing that gay was a not normal thing so it never occurred to me to be straight really <laughs> sort of like <laughs> I always knew I just thought people were attractive depending on the people like I, I just because I and I felt those feelings before I realized in the world there was a difference does that make sense like I knew I, I, I as far as I can remember back I remember being attracted to men and women um and yeah, but but I remember that before when in school I realized people thought gay was weird or bad. Um, I didn't have my first homosexual relationship until I was in my teens, but um, and I certainly didn't. I didn't come. Did I even come out? I don't think I did. I don't think that I didn't have a coming out moment. I just always was that um, there was there was no sexuality reveal party where you uh... no no reveal party now on the other hand i have always always known i was a 100 a girl 100 female I have never questioned an ounce of my gender um which is yeah interesting um and i was also going to say so similarly to being raised with gay not being a thing or an issue um like i had black baby dolls um with like just as a thing like it wasn't it wasn't here you have this black baby doll because you need to learn that that black people are cool too or but i had multi-racial toys and like my favorite favorite baby doll named sweetie was happened to be a a black baby um and so in the same way i didn't really realize that racism was a thing until i got around other kids mm. um and then religion wise um i was sent to a bunch of different religious camps every summer um because neither of my parents were religious but they wanted me to have the opportunity to experience a bunch of different religions so that if a something clicked for me I could choose um my favorites 
ended up being Jewish camp and Baha'i camp, but I still didn't choose any. Mm. Religion sucks, I think. <laughs> Seems very not, culty to me. I don't know, not, man. You're not going to get any arguments from me on, <laughs> on that one. Uh, it's a delicate yeah. dance because on the one hand, very much for me, it's a pretty clear idea of like, none of this exists. We made it all up. Like, come on, like, you know, let's get over it kind of thing. Mm. On the other hand, in some other circles that I'm in, even sometimes political work and, you know, the importance that religious faith plays for, for some people, like it's, it's kind of easy and cheap and reductive to say, oh, well, they should just have good politics and be good people without religion. They shouldn't yeah. need it for that. Right. And it's not so much that the folks need it. Right. You know, so much as like it informs their worldview and yep. especially when you're a culture who is being colonized or oppressed or things like that, mm -hmm. you know, holding on to what identifies you as a group becomes super important. Right. So like I've experienced none of that. Right. So it's pretty easy for me to sit here as an atheist and right. And, and tell people who are like, oh, I could never be vegan. It's such a part of my like, you know, oh, well, heritage is in destiny and that sort of thing. Well, like, motherfucker, like, you know, you're yeah. easy for you to say. Right. Like, but well, that's and I would love to have something like that, to have a grounding thing like that and um, something that gave me explanations and and uh, reassurance and uh, uh, places to go. Um, like it, the way you're talking about it reminds me about how in my life I find having queer spaces extremely important to me and to my well being. Um, I feel it's probably similar to religious people in that they have spaces that are there. Oh, there's a word. Their <laughs> it's tribe. Obvious. Their tribe. Yeah, they find their people. Their tribe. Or what is it called when you go to a church and it's you sanctuary. There you go. It's their sanctuary. Mm -hmm. And um dealing with things like trauma and death and big challenges in your life and having um, something to lean on and give you hope and things like that would be uh, amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's yeah. I always, this is going to sound a certain way, but like, I'm always super surprised. I shouldn't say super surprised. Cause like, I get it. Right. It's just, it is the way the world is, but I'm a little surprised when I meet somebody and they're otherwise like really sharp and like super intelligent and like critical, critically think and like read the world well for what it is. And then they're like, Oh, but also sky daddy and you know, zombie yeah, Jesus. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, what? what? Yeah. It, it does. It, it yeah. really is really hard for me to click, you know, but Same. yeah, you know, like I said, it's a, it's a delicate dance. Like I'm not here to like offend anybody yeah. or, you know, piss on what no. gives them meaning and purpose, right? Totally. But yeah, I think it's uh, it's identity. It's I think it has to do with identity and belief systems and stuff. And my question to you is, 
you say you did 12 steps, right? You did a 12 step program. Mm -hmm. How did you, cause I, there was a eating disorder 12 step program that I tried in my teens and I left because I couldn't reconcile the higher power thing and like yeah. giving up of, I mean, like, oh, how, how did, how did you do that? So when I first started getting sober, um, it was, it was a shock to the system. You know, you're sitting there and you look up at the steps on the wall and you're like, I ain't doing that. I ain't doing that. I ain't doing that. <laughs> all, all the ones that I've got in it. Right. And for years, there wasn't much secular you know recovery and so you just kind of you find your people you you bob and weave you replace words and you practice you know sort of our our, our slogan is you know take what you want and leave the rest right use mm. what works use what works for you and forget about forget about the baby and bathwater, right and right. that's kind of how i had to treat it because for me it's right. like listen this is the last house in the block, you know, like I like, and I'm not going to let this chase me out. Like, don't let this, cause like my brain wants to come up with an excuse to leave and go get fucked up. Right. So like, don't let this be the thing that chases you out. The problem is for a lot of people, it is like, I, I maintain that Alcoholics Anonymous has killed people because of that. And not just because of that, but because of the sort of the the culture, like a, a lot of things with religion is the culture that builds up around it, right? Yeah. And the customs and slogans that get layered on top that aren't mm-hmm. necessarily, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of bullshit in the, in, in, in the, in the literature, right? But there's other things that people like throw on top of that, you know, like you hear horror stories about, you know some old guy putting his finger in somebody's chest and saying, you're not going to get sober without God. Like, don't do it your way. You know, your best thinking got you here. Uh, Mm. And, you know, or like when you go to the Mississippi and, you know, Bible passages are the, are the meeting topic, right? There's, there's the big book and the good book, right? Like together. Right. So like, and then that's to say nothing of the fact that like it's view of addiction is stuck in the mid 20th century it, hmm. the, lit- the literature is replete nice. with misogyny and hard to understand words and right like and and then and again like religion people not treating it in its historical context and and wanting to adapt like they're just now developing a plain language version of the big book that took wow. years of fighting to get through years of fighting because people are resistant to change often alcoholics are resistant to change you know so um and 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 so and what's happened in the last few years is secular recovery has exploded it's all over the place right yeah um you know when i was first getting sober there was a few meetings here and there in new york city and i had to schlep into new york city now you know there's a couple in jersey and then when covid hit and we were all on zoom going to meetings on zoom then it's just like I have a spreadsheet with hundreds of meetings. Oh, right. right. In Anywhere. different in different groups, whether I want to do AA or NA or ACA or Sex Anonymous, which I've had you know trouble with, you know, like like. Wow. Right, like it's the, I can just click and boom. There's no God. There's yeah. no prayers. It's the, uh, the people, right? So like, yeah. You know, now at the same time, like I said. Yeah. There's still elements of it that I don't like, and I mix in other things, you know, and I think 
I think they don't view sobriety. Their view of sobriety is too binary, right? Mm -hmm. Like the way that, the way that somebody put it the other day um, on Instagram is that, you know, we focus too much on sobriety and not enough on recovery. Like the Mm -hmm. former being the definition of the latter and that this person defines recovery as like regaining a happy and meaningful life, you know, however that person defines it. Right. And so oh, for me, so I, I've come to define it as abstinence from alcohol, abstinence from cocaine, abstinence from, you know, heroin, uh, treating things like my ADHD stim and, you know, painkillers after surgery, treating that the way it should be treated. Yep. But after 20 years away from it, which I think I needed. Um, in November of 2022, I've started reintroducing cannabis. Nice. Uh, yeah. In small amounts um, for, you know, and I think um, still figuring things out, um, recreational chemistry, <laughs> but um, yeah. I think it's, there's paths for it with my mental health and, and my ADHD and things like that. that 100%. You know, and yeah. so that's kind of the, I guess, the long answer of you know, the, the guy yeah. question in recovery. Yeah. I, I, there's, I think many similarities to just the, the very last thing you said there about what was it? Recovery versus sobriety. Yeah. Was, mm-hmm. was those the two words? Yeah, yeah. Like my personal feeling is that I will never be cured of mm-hmm. eating disorders or eat our um, disordered eating mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, a, because I have to think about every single thing that goes into my mouth and because I have to read every single ingredient, therefore every single nutritional t- table. Um, but I am at a point where I can maintain a healthy weight and, um, you know, not abuse laxatives or, you know, make myself barf after every meal or use black or do you know like it's 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 almost like for me right now it's it's healthy enough it's the best I can do I am still in therapy for many many things including that mm-hmm. um it's often the first thing to go if uh, other things are overwhelming me um I'll realize like oh oops I haven't eaten today. And that is, that's an, it's just like a gut reaction. Um, The other thing that's, that's different about um, something like a substance abuse or misuse, or say, let's use alcohol or cocaine. um, You don't need those things to survive. Mm -hmm. You can generally avoid them with making choices in your life mm-hmm. sometimes i mean it's a lot on tv and film and everything but you no, do but you literally have, need to eat to survive but yeah you do have to <laughs> face food every day <laughs> so there's no yeah. there's no avoiding it which makes it a little it makes it it makes it hard makes it hard mm-hmm. um, i dated a woman um from when i was 18 to when i was 26 and we lived together for six years too um she had struggles 
with uh, with eating disorders. The main way it showed up for her, uh, I think they called it back then, um, binge eating syndrome or something like that. Yep. It's like binge very similar disorder. to bulimia, yeah. but like without the purging part of it. Yeah. Right? And just yeah. the struggles she would have and the weight fluctuations and the self, you know, image and the let's try oh. this and let's try that. Yep. And, you know, I remember, you know, um, you know, this week it was okay on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I'm going to allow myself a chocolate bar from quick check, the convenience store. Like around, yeah. right? And then like two weeks later, it was, don't let me around any chocolate whatsoever. Like, you know, right. yeah. And I'm just yeah. like, you know, and I used to say that, um, you know, I was no angel. Like this was like the height of my drinking and drugging too. Right. And so I used to say that like the rocks in my head fit the holes in hers, you know, and it was definitely yeah. a, co- a codependent relationship, but to, to yeah. the point, point being that like, I've, you know, lost touch with her for various reasons, but you know, last I was in touch with her, exactly what you said, like, it's not going to disappear. Right. There's no. no, like, Oh, it's completely gone forever and ever kind of thing. Yeah. But you, yeah. you but you put together a life you can, you can live, you know, and, exactly. and she's doing yes. much, much better. And I'm, and I'm very glad for it. Yeah. That's amazing. I think, I think maybe one of the, the one of the reasons that there is the <laughs> comorbidity or um, co-occurrence, goddammit. <laughs> overlap, uh, intersection between neurodiversity and addiction um, is also um, black and white thinking, mm-hmm. you know, like eating disorder addiction is it, it, well you know well I had a beer might as well go and get a, two more bottles of tequila since I mm-hmm. fucked it up completely or mm-hmm. oh wow I ate a piece of chocolate cake guess I'm eating the entire cake now yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> um the all or nothing mindset uh, is definitely one of the factors in my stuff which is you know it's the it shows up in my neurodiversity has like okay before I buy anything like okay we need a new dryer that's that's gonna mean I'm doing a week of research about every single dryer that's available (laughs) comparing you know making a spreadsheet and comparing every single um option and size and color and feature (laughs) until like and I know logically that that's not required. You can come probably compare like six or two and it'll still be a fine dryer, but I need to exhaust <laughs> every option. And do it perfectly, um, right? Right. I have and, to do it perfectly. And you're not done until you do it this way and it's finished. Exactly. Like two so deaths. Like, I would do that spreadsheet about like, say, fantasy football and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Complete overkill. But like, if I need a dryer, I just go like, whatever, like just Google dryer Amazing. and look at three of them. Like, okay, just whatever. Yeah. I just need a dryer. Yeah. They write and everybody's different. Like, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. The other day on Flow Club, I think you were in a session where uh, I had been asked to look for smaller, more economical musicals for the coming mm-hmm. seasons. Mm-hmm. And that was supposed to be like an hour long task for the next three days. (laughs) I researched every musical ever also got into, okay, well, this musical has been done this way in the past. 
but what if we totally reimagined it, stripped it down, recast it this way, did this, that, and I also ended up in a whole of the most expensive musical ever made um, and marveling at the opposite side of things. Like, it's, I love it, but it also drives me crazy. Like, that was fun, but also I could not stop if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. I yeah. did um, 16 hours of podcast prep for four hours of, of podcasting one week during like the height of a certain part of the fantasy football season. And I was right. Like, uh, what am I doing to myself? Yeah. 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 It's very funny, isn't it? The off switch. Or like or what I'll, I'll, I'll do, there'll be switch. a thing at work, right? And I'll, okay, I'm going to now give you a, you know, proposal for an entirely new program with all the rationale, all the different courses you need for it. <laughs> And then when they don't just when they don't just say yes and implement my vision, it's like, what, 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 what? what? You don't you don't understand? Like this is yeah. this is perfection. This is the like, right way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you do group work at all growing up? Because <laughs> no, anytime- well, uh, you and I were probably the person who was like, "Fuck it, I'll just go do it and finish it myself." Yes. Okay. All of you just don't do anything. I got this because I know that if I do it, I'll do it correctly. Quote unquote. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, are you drinking something called liquid death? Oh yeah. So it's a it's 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 like purposefully stupid. Like um, it's just sparkling water. Like, but oh. they make they they call it liquid death and they put a skull on it and the flavor is convicted <laughs> lime. Oh wait, no, severed lime, right? And there's convicted melon and Ooh. Um, you know That's all these very you know, very fitting for you. I like it. It's called murder your, they say their slogan is murder your thirst. Yeah. It's like this thing. Like someone sees you with a can that says liquid death and it's like, oh, it's water. Oh, yeah. Not what I would think, but I love that. Right. Yeah. I would drink it. Amazing. Amazing. Um, so we've cool. talked about um, being careful about putting things in your <laughs> mouth a few times. Tell me about your four year BJ in which you graduated summa cum loudly. Astonished. Um, yeah. So my dad gave me which uh, I am estranged from my father now. Let's just throw that in the pile of mm-hmm. fun. Um, and, which has happened a number of times uh, throughout my life. I'm 40 now. So um, yeah, it's been, it's been about two years, this current version. Um, so he doesn't know a whole lot of what's going on in my life currently. But anyway, um, so my BJ, my four-year BJ was, based on two pieces, the only two pieces of advice my father ever gave me, which was one, never date an actor. Um, And I've pretty much exclusively dated actors. (laughs) Definitely my longest term relationships were all actors and I am currently married to an actor. Um, And the other piece of advice was don't go into theater, which, uh, you know, you know how I was raised. You're raised around all that magic. I don't understand how that could be possible. Um, mm. And so, but uh, doing the best I could, I thought I love performing and I love writing. Um, so journalism school would be the perfect combo. I could be like a TV news anchor, write my stories and then perform them. Perfect. So I went to Carleton University. They have an incredible journalism program, um, specifically like for um, written journalism at the time, whereas Ryerson University, which is called something else now, 
Toronto something something university because Ryerson was problematic. Um, anyway, so Ryerson was more the technical um, place to go if you wanted to do, if you wanted to be like a radio DJ. Um, so anyway, go to Carleton. We don't touch equipment until the third year of four years. And I realized I hate cameras. Uh, I can't do linear editing. And um, that wasn't it. <laughs> so I did, I, I ended up specializing in arts reporting and criticism and PR. And of course, I did uh, overachievers that we are, I did um, a double minor, which is actually not something you can do. Like there are no majors and minors in a journalism degree, but I did a double minor in um, French literature and um, and English, uh, wait, no, English literature and, and French, just general French. Um, so that's my four-year BJ. I, I came out with a specialty and instantly I got funding to do an internship at Canadian Stage Company in Toronto and uh, in their PR department. And then my boss got pregnant and they gave me her job. And so I started my career in theater as um, not counting the child acting stuff as a uh publicist and publications editor at Canadian Stage Company. And then worked in PR and publicity for like a decade-ish um, in different places in Toronto, great big places, amazing stuff. I got to do a number of things. It also didn't include, it wasn't just theater. Um, I got to work on all sorts of performing arts and visual arts and magic and dance and um, cultural festivals. And I even did a stint uh, where my publicist portfolio included sailing. <laughs> well, um, uh, my favorite story of working at Harborfront Center where, where I were sailing, the sailing programs were part of my portfolio, is I had to write a press release about this artistic exhibit where it was a glass box, basically, with a insert in the middle of it, so ha halved, basically, um, with a pinhole in the middle of the middle piece of glass, and the top was full of salt. And during the three month exhibit, the salt dripped down one grain at a time into the bottom half of the glass case. And I had to write, you know, a press release has to be at least a page long. So that I remember as one of the most challenging pieces of publicity. Watch salt fall, period. You can't even if you stand there for okay. an hour, you're not even going to see it. So my question is, what's the trial and error for the person to figure out exactly the right amount of salt to, right. you know, you know, fall in three months? I know. I know. How, there must how be many months version. did this person waste with salt <laughs> dripping in their home? Like, oh, no, that's, that one took six years. months. 
it's got to be years. It must have been at different places for different lengths of time. So that that is a good, hilarious story of dealing with artists and their artistic statements. It's my passion, but um, maybe not visual arts so much as performing arts. Um, so while I was doing PR and publicity in Toronto, I started dabbling in indie theater mm. and um, specifically producing. Maybe that's the control thing coming up again, but I really love putting teams together and figuring out puzzles and producing is essentially that um, figuring out how to translate an artist's idea into real world happening. <laughs> um, so I, I did a bunch of that with maybe a dozen theater companies over a few years. And then um, an actor I had met years before named Adam Brazier called me up one day and said, I want to start a theater company. I want it to be artist-led um, and we'll, we'll be a company. Um, artist-led meaning artists coming together and, try, and, and doing what they want to do with an artistic vision. And that's my favorite thing in the world is, is artists and their creativity. And so I said, yes. And so for three years, we, we started this company called Theater 20 from the ground up. Um, it, we, I figured out how to incorporate as a business, how to become a Canadian charity. And on uh, the third year of our five or six year run, I got to quit my day job after working three years of two full-time jobs, one for free. Uh, I got to quit my day job on my birthday and start being paid for the job that I created, which is still, I think, the highlight of my life. My my life goal was always to run a theater company, to run my own theater company. Um, and not that it was my own. It was all of us. Uh, there were 20 artists and me included, uh, which is also when I realized that I am an artist, too, um, which was really hard and, and took a while to embrace. But I... I do consider myself an artist uh, now for sure. Um, and then uh, after doing, you know, we didn't have a clue what we were doing. So we fundraised for our first production, which was a brand new Canadian musical. Um, we fundraised $900,000 because we didn't know that that was impossible. <laughs> we just didn't know, so we did it. We formed a board of directors and we put on a show. Um, we learned a lot um, and we were part of the Mervish, Mervish season, which is the, the big commercial theater company um, here in Canada. We were part of their season, our first production. So I'm so proud of that. And, and then Adam got poached to come to the Charlottetown Festival to be artistic director here. Uh, I was general manager of Theater 20 then. And um, he sort of said, we come as a package deal. <laughs> and so I moved to Charlottetown and uh, my first job, this is unreal. I don't know. Do you, have you heard of Son Sir John A. MacDonald? Mm. Yeah. So he was like um, the creators of Confederation we call our founding fathers. And, you know, it's similar to the States, you know, a bunch of white guys deciding to create a country and this great land of emptiness where nobody 
nobody important lives here and definitely nothing is established already. Anyway, he was um, he was integral in the creation of Canada as a country. And this was 2015, so not that long ago. We um, I helped write the show and then we toured the country, every capital city in the country with a show called Our Founding Father about Sir John A. Macdonald. <laughs> who was the founder of residential schools um, mm. for Indigenous people. And it, um, yeah, problematic, really problematic. Um, we did address a lot of it, also like severe alcoholic in the House of Commons and Parliament. Anyway, so that's how I ended up here, was um, touring the country with that Sir John A. show. And, uh, and then I moved into high-end fundraising uh, and then that uh, was a bit traumatic um most donors are older white men who think that they can buy you me uh the young usually female fundraising worker um that their million dollar donation also buys you <laughs> or a smaller donation certainly buys you uh on their arm for a night or a dinner date or in my case uh getting raped um so after that experience i i i am grateful for the experience in learning how to raise money which i did at theater 20 as well but i will always be em employable because if you can make money for the arts the arts will always need money. <laughs> anyway, so uh, things went pretty sideways for me at, at that point. Um, I had a mental breakdown, which I'm already, I think because of some of my neuro, neuro spiciness, I like to call it gravity sensitive, but I'm a really klutzy person. I am a very, I run into things. I'm constantly injured and doing stupid things that hurt myself uh, this is and i'm not talking about self-harm like that they are accidental but i'm i break limbs fairly often <laughs> i also have osteoporosis but that's another topic and um, maybe we'll get to maybe we won't anyway so at, this is 2020 now and um that happens and covid starting and I'm having a nervous breakdown. And at the same time, within you know the same month, I managed to break on three separate occasions, my right wrist and both of my feet, <laughs> three separate incidents. So I'm left with my left hand and no brain. Um, and it, But it was COVID, so kind of amazing timing. I am the daughter of a stage manager, so it makes sense. Um, and so that was a really tough time. I was on a lot of drugs, both painkillers and mood stabilizers slash annihilators. And uh, when I came back from that, um, I sort of insisted that I need to be in the theater department where I belong, not just raising money. For theater i my place is close to artists my place is helping artists um bring their ideas to fruition it's what i'm best at um and what i love doing the most and so that's what i did i came back 
to the theater department. And I love it. <laughs> as usual, as I have my entire life. Yeah. Perhaps un- unsurprisingly, you know, I don't, you know, whatever generalization, but listen, there's constellations of things that often, you know, travel together. But, you know, given your, you just, your you-ness, um, you know, just your, your story, where you've been, the neurospiciness, the, the queerness, the art, artistic nature, one, one would not be surprised that you have very good politics. And I don't know that we've talked about it much, and I don't know that I have a great answer to this question, but can you remember anything along the way of like that pushed you in certain directions, you know, uh, events or things you learned or like kind of how you got to to have that sort of worldview? Uh, certainly my mom and her her just like her openness and the things like how it wasn't until I got to public school and other people outside of the theater community that I learned what racism was or uh, homophobia or... Mm any of those things. So I think that speaks volumes in that all those weren't. Okay, that was part two of my interview with my friend Rosie. Hope you found it interesting, like I did. And part three is coming right up. I think it's going to be a, a great conclusion to our conversation. And as always, thanks for listening.